Ever since the early signing period in December went into place, the traditional first Wednesday of February signing day has been very anticlimactic. And true to form, Arizona State did not have a flurry of recruits signed today. Nonetheless, it was interesting to see how the Sun Devils were able to round out their 2020 recruiting class. So we'll discuss the new additions and just the class as a whole in this episode of the Devils Junkies podcast. We'll also have one of those late additions in Stanford offensive lineman grad transfer Henry Haddis, who will join ASU in the summer. We will also talk about the defensive shakeups that ASU experienced in the last couple weeks. What does it all mean in terms of the new co-defensive coordinators in place and what scheme we may or may not see starting as soon as spring practice in less than three weeks. And speaking of spring practice, we'll take a quick look at some of the positions and players that we believe are worth following as those 15 sessions kick off the last week of February. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsitis.com publisher, Hode Rubino. And I'll tell you what, being a website publisher for the last 20 years, it's still hard to get used to the new order of signing days where all the excitement takes place the third week of December. And here you are the first Wednesday in February, something that you're just programmed each and every year to be super busy, trying to keep up with all the players who signed, all the last minute movements in in terms of the recruiting class. And what do you have? Just a couple of players signed today for Arizona State, which is obviously the norm, not the exception in today's college football landscape. And today, Arizona State did fill its quota, if you will, of available scholarships. All the players that would have signed a letter of intent with Arizona State as part of the 2020 class did actually Signed some of them today, some of them previously, and Arizona State is done when it comes to the 2020 class. Any player that they would sign from now until fall camp would count towards the 2021 class. So let's briefly talk about the two players that did sign today, both of them high school prospects. The first one, a quarterback from Northern California, San Mateo, Sarah, by the name of Dylan McLemore. Really interesting story as far as being the so-called late bloomer who barely played his junior year for his high school. He plays his senior year, the first seven games, then has to miss the next six weeks with a broken collarbone. The team still is able to prevail and actually qualify for the state championship. That was the first game McLemore did come back from injury, and that was a game that they narrowly lost to Corona Del Mar. This is just a, a perfect situation which allowed Arizona State to snag a pretty good quarterback, I would say, very, very late in the recruiting process. Another really unique anecdote about the recruitment of McLemore is that his high school was one of those rarities where they played most of their games on Saturdays, which means you can't take official visits to any colleges, and more importantly, College coaches have a real hard time coming out and visiting you on a Saturday when they have to coach their own team. So this is how such a prospect was able to fall in between the cracks. Offensive coordinator Zach Hill, 
who was part of the National Signing Day press conference that took place on Wednesday afternoon, was very excited about Mecklemore joining the ranks. Hill said in his press conference that he really liked Mecklemore's size, 6'3", over 200 pounds. He really equated him in, in a lot of ways to current starting quarterback Jaden Daniels in terms of being a dual-threat quarterback, somebody who could combine a very strong arm as well as being a very good athlete. Now, not that Mecklemore is expected to play as a true freshman and is probably not ready to assume that duty or definitely not ready as somebody like Jaden Daniels was last year. But nonetheless, Zach Hill really, really does like his potential. And he feels that under the circumstances, again, getting a quality quarterback this late in the process is something that is definitely a challenging recruiting task. But nonetheless, Zach Hill, for what it's worth in his press conference, was extremely happy to get a quarterback such as McLemore and is definitely excited to have him come here in the summer, compete in fall camp. I don't know if I would quite anoint him as the backup to Jaden Daniels. I think that would, in some respects, be a disservice to the lone returning quarterback aside from Daniels, which is Ethan Long. But the sophomore is really someone that I still feel is going to be more of a jack-of-all-trades rather than a clear-cut number two quarterback in this program. Now, obviously the development, or I should say the rate of development of Mecklemore and Fall Camp is, is going to dictate a lot in this sense. But uh, it will be interesting to see how fast Mecklemore can really pick up the system. And when you look at his arm strength, you look at his athleticism, are those some aspects that can probably help him in securing that number two quarterback position behind Jaden Daniels. So uh, McLemore uh, seems a very intriguing prospect. Arizona State really wanted to get a quarterback, obviously, in this class with the departures of Dylan Sterling Cole and Joe Yellen. And by all accounts, at least according to Zach Hill, they really got a pretty formidable signal caller. Again, this late in the recruiting process, they felt they did very, very well in that area. Anybody who watched film of the Boise State offense last year and really in the last couple of seasons for that matter definitely noticed that Zach Hill is a type of offensive coordinator that likes to employ two tight end sets. I'm not calling it as being an every down scheme, but nonetheless, it is definitely one offensive look that you do get to see quite often. And that is exactly what Zach Hill wants to bring to Tempe. So it was imperative for him to sign a tight end. I mentioned that in my premium community at devilsdigest.com on the Devil's Huddle board that right when the signing period in December ended, that Arizona State was definitely going to target a tight end. In some respects, I expect it to be a graduate transfer rather than a high school player. I don't think ultimately Arizona State was able to find anybody in the transfer portal that really was going to be a good fit. And perhaps maybe there were some targets out there that just simply were not able to land. But nonetheless, Zach Hill was also excited about the other signee on Wednesday, Jake Ray from Fort Lauderdale, St. Thomas Aquinas, which is the number one high school program in the state of Florida, ranked number five on Max Preps nationally. Jack Ray is somebody who definitely comes with a college-ready body, if you will, 6'4", 240 pounds, according to Zach Hill's press conference comments. So definitely somebody who's more of a blocker than a very deft route runner for, for a tight end. But uh, Zach Hill did not want to sell Jake Ray short and did make sure to point out that he does move very well for his size.
Hill also added that he's going to really take a close look at the tight end group in terms of all the returning players, evaluate them in spring practice, like he would any other position for that matter, and just really see what he can actually do in terms of employing multiple tight end sets here at Arizona State. Can Jake Ray and Ryan Morgan, who's arriving here in the summer as well, Ryan Morgan, if you recall, is a blue shirt, so his scholarship is going to count towards the 2021 season. But can these two freshmen really carve a niche in the tight end group and more importantly, really allow Zach Hill to employ the tight end in the various ways that he liked to do as he did in Boise State. I personally think that Hill may be a good year or two away from actually being very creative with his tight ends, but maybe some of the returning players do get to surprise just with a new set of eyes on them. And maybe later on in the summer, these two true freshmen are able to give Hill the ammunition, if you will, to really have this tight end group be much more of a contributor to the Arizona State offense and maybe also be a bigger part of an offense that is really expected to be more creative under Zach Hill. So those are the two high school players that did sign today. And let's move on now to the two grad transfers, both of them offensive linemen, starting out with uh, Kellen Deesh from Texas A&M. Deesh is someone who was actually already enrolled in school, already on campus, so you will see him in spring practice in less than three weeks. And trust me, if you're curious to see what Arizona State's new left tackle is going to look like in spring practice, your enthusiasm, your curiosity does not even come close to that of Herm Edwards, who said in Wednesday's press conference, I ain't going to say nothing. Just if you come to practice, look at the left tackle. Just look at the left tackle. That's all I'm going to say. Obviously, you know, Herm Edwards is always entertaining in his press conferences, but needless to say that he cannot get enough of having a left tackle that stands 6'6", 300, and more importantly, having a very mature, very experienced player in that role coming from a Power 5 program. This move obviously necessitates Ladarius Henderson, the true freshman who started at left tackle for most of the season, to actually move to right tackle. So that will be another interesting adjustment to watch on the offensive line. I wouldn't say that Ladarius Henderson did a horrible job at left tackle. And again, keeping in mind that he was a true freshman in 2019, uh, there's only so much you can expect uh, from a, such a young player. Remember, he only turned 18 in mid-December after the season ended. So there's a lot of growth, both physically and mentally, that Anderson will still undergo. Wouldn't be surprised if we may see him back at left tackle as an upperclassman. But right now, just to have an experienced left tackle, have Anderson develop at his own rate, for lack of a better term, at at right tackle after really being baptized by fire at left tackle as a true freshman. I think it's something that should pay dividends down the road for the Sun Devils offensive line. The other grad transfer offensive lineman is Henry Haddis, who arrives to ASU from Stanford. He is uh, somebody who's slated to assume the left guard position next to Kellen Deesh, so you'll have a lot of experience, a lot of bulk. Uh, Henry Haddis himself is a 6'6", 300-pound player. And to get a little more perspective on why Henry Haddis chose Arizona State, what what his recruiting process with the Sun Devils was like, here's an interview that I did with Haddis earlier on Wednesday 
after he was officially announced as one of the newest additions to the Sun Devils. So joining us now in the Devils Junkies podcast is one of two grad transfers on the offensive line that did sign with the Sun Devils, Henry Haddis, a grad transfer from Stanford. Uh, Henry, thanks for joining us. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, let's talk about the decision to uh, to join the ranks uh, for the Sun Devils. What were some of the factors you feel really played a factor early on in the process uh, that made you eventually sign with Arizona State? Uh, I mean, I've always really liked Arizona State. Um, I mean, they're close to home for me, uh, being from, from Albuquerque. So, um, I mean, I had actually been out there kind of in high school for, for recruiting. Um, and I really liked the, the campus and Tempe and everything about it. But I'd say probably the biggest thing um, that got me on ASU early was kind of my connection with Casey uh, Tucker. Um, as you know, he's a, he's a grad transfer kind of in my shoes from, from Stanford a couple of years ago. Uh, he's a really good friend of mine, and, and I trust him um, really well. So when he kind of told me that, that Coach Christensen was, was looking for some offensive linemen, he kind of got the, the ball rolling for me um, in, the, in the recruiting process, got me kind of connected with, with Christensen. Um, and so that was, that was really kind of influential in my decision. Now, what about the fact, Henry, that uh, you were recruited by Arizona State under the previous coaching regime and also your sister played basketball over here? When you look yeah. back at your decision, do those kind of factor in, too? Uh, I mean, a little bit. I, I was talking to my sister about it while I was home, uh, about the, the possibility of it. Obviously, she being an alumni, she, uh, she was all for it. Um, but, I mean, honestly, it was... I was kind of open in my recruiting process, looking for for the best program for me. And, and as soon as I took my visit down there, um, kind of middle of December, I kind of realized that, that, that they had everything I needed in the college football program and the the goals I was trying to to realize. So I'm uh, I'm really excited about my decision to go to go to ASU. Now, just a curiosity, I mean, what what at what point of the season did you think that you would not? and your career at Stanford? And, and how hard was that decision looking back? Uh, I mean, there was a, a lot of things that kind of went into the decision to, to grad transfer. Uh, I think it was it was definitely after the season. Um, nothing nothing really to do with Stanford. Um, I mean, I had a great four years here, um, great coaching and, and great people up here. Loved, loved going to school. But um, the big thing was, was kind of finding a, a program that was better suited for, for my, my end goals and what I wanted to do with my career. Um, I mean, I'm going to be able to get a, get a master's program at, at ASU, uh, which will be very beneficial for me later down in life. Um, and also play for, for what I feel is the, some of the best offensive line coaches in, in the Pac-12 uh, with Coach Christensen and Coach Mawai. So um, it was, it's no bad blood. I mean, I talked to Coach Shaw, and he was really, really helpful in the whole transfer process. So i uh, really grateful for, for the help there. Um, kind of excited to, for this new chapter. Uh, now, did you deal more with uh, Coach Mawai or Coach Christensen during the recruiting process? Both, definitely both. Um, I mean, Coach Christensen was, was definitely the main uh, one recruiting me, being the offensive line coach. Um, but with, with Coach Mawai being, being with the experience he has um, and kind of the plans uh, that he has for, for the program and moving up, um, I mean, they were both both equally influential in, in my decision to, to come play for ASU. So i got to ask you, Andrea, I see a lot of pictures of uh, Kevin Mawai on the road uh, adorning that uh, gold 
Hall of Fame jacket. And look, I mean, if you and I got into the Hall of Fame, I guess we'll be wearing it, you know, a few days a week. Uh, just a curiosity, uh, how many times during the recruiting process did you get to see that gold jacket in person? I uh, unfortunately never got to see the, see the gold jacket myself. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm sure that's the one of the best recruiting pitches in, in college football for sure. Um, but I mean, just, just that aside, just talking to him, getting to pick his brain a little bit about the game of football and, and some technique that he'll be able to help me with in, in my own uh, game is just, is just really exciting. So I know something like Kevin Mawai, when he joined the staff, I think he was just part of the overall picture of the program, if you will, trying to have as many staff members that played in the NFL. And ASU lucked out uh, not only getting a former NFL player, but also a Hall of Famer in the process. For you uh, personally, just the, Kev- the fact that Kevin Mawai played in the NFL, obviously a member of the Hall of Fame, having all this NFL experience on staff, starting obviously with Herm Edwards, as somebody who has only one year of eligibility, obviously has the aspirations to play at the next level, how important was that as you were debating which school to finish your college career at? I mean, it was definitely, uh, it was it was very exciting for me to, to realize all the NFL experience that they have on staff. Um, but just talking to Casey Tucker, knowing just how good of a coach he is and how good of a person he is, I think is the, the main priority for me. Um, I mean, in the in the end, it's going to help me develop as a player um, on, on the, his ability to, to coach the game of football, not not just rest on the laurels of his own achievements. You know, um, so I feel like that's kind of the more the more important more important factor. So, when you thought that Arizona State just might be the place for you, just a curiosity, what kind of research do you do on the internet? I mean, do you just look look at YouTube clips, or can you even get um, you know clips elsewhere of um, uh, complete games to really get an in-depth knowledge of what Arizona State's offense and offensive line, for that matter, are? Right. I, I mean, I, I haven't really been following it too, too closely during the year. Um, obviously, with them not being on our schedule, uh, we didn't really have their film for the year. Um, but once I once I kind of started considering ASU as, as a possible place to transfer, I obviously started watching, watching a lot of the film and um, I mean, I was able to get most of it kind of through the, the Pac-12 connections we have mm-hmm. um, and kind of watch, watch their offensive line and kind of what they're doing with the offense. And I, I mean, obviously everyone was watching the, the ASU-Oregon game um, <laughs> with that, that matchup and the, the excitement there, too. So that was really exciting. Um, but I also really kind of liked what they were doing schematically um, and technique-wise with the offensive line. I know that uh, wide receivers – are drawn by who their quarterback's going to be as they're going through the recruiting process, probably running backs to some extent. An offensive lineman like yourself, uh, when you see Jaden Daniels, what he did as a true freshman, does that really play a factor too in your uh, grand total decision-making, so to speak? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think um, coming in and being a part of a position like an offensive lineman um, really depends on the, the player personnel around you, you know, um, the success of the offensive line obviously doesn't depend on, on one individual. It's, it's all five guys. Um, so, I mean, obviously it's really exciting to, to play for, for a mobile and talented quarterback like Jaden, but also getting to know the, the young guys on the offensive line coming up, kind of see the, uh, the potential they have and, and the, the opportunities we can kind of get going as, a, as an offensive line unit. When you went through the recruiting process with Arizona State, Henry, was there one aspect that was maybe a pleasant surprise 
as you're getting to know the program more and more. And, and again, you did definitely have some background on the program. It wasn't like you were right. jumping into this cold feet. But looking back, is there one aspect or one event that took place during the process that you kind of look back and said that maybe was unexpected in a very positive way about the Sun Devils? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, an uh, ex-manager uh, at Stanford, Gabe Landa, um, who's a really good friend of mine, he, he went down to Arizona State, um, and he's actually on the coaching staff now, and he's doing really well, and he kind of was the, one of the main recruiters while I was down there. So that was just kind of a cool experience, getting to, to reconnect with him and, and kind of see how successful he's, he's doing with his career. Okay. So, uh, Henry, just uh, just kind of bring us up to speed. Um, when uh, do you anticipate graduating from Stanford and uh, arriving here in the Valley uh, in time for fall camp? Yeah, so I mean, I graduated Stanford in the spring, um, so I'll be coming down there to start summer school and summer conditioning. Um, I mean, ideally, I'd, I'd like to come down sooner, but that's just kind of the way things are shaking out. I mean, that's kind of what, what Casey did sure. uh, with his senior year, and he said that the transition was, was very smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was also kind of a reason why why I trust uh, trust why it's going to be smooth and, and a good transition for me as well. Okay. And, and last question, uh, Henry, what, what is the one thing that you're looking forward to the most as you're joining Arizona State? Maybe something that you want to see happen, you know, in the first month or two being with the program? Um, I mean, I think as an offensive lineman, you want to, you want to see chemistry as early as possible. I mean, you want to be able to not only build good relationships with guys off the field, but on the field too, you got to be able to, to trust the guy um, to your left and right, and I feel like with, with me and Kellen coming in, it, it'll be really exciting to, to see the guys really kind of connect and, and trust us uh, as if we've been there our whole career. So, and, and I feel like with the coaching and the just discipline they have at ASU, I feel like that shouldn't be a problem, and we can, we can get the ball rolling early and start a, start a cool season, you know? Okay. Well, Henry, I really appreciate your time. I know um, as uh, you're uh, marching towards the finish line, uh, getting a degree from Stanford, your time is at a premium, so uh, thank you so much for giving us uh, a few minutes uh, over here. Congratulations on signing with the Sun Devils. Look forward to covering you uh, down the road. Thanks, a lot. I really appreciate you having me on. Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason for the songs that I do choose to go from one portion of the podcast to another, but uh, it's no coincidence that I chose the song All the Stars when talking about just an overview of Arizona State's uh, recruiting class, ranked 25th in the country, according to Rivals.com, a record nine four-stars that signed with the Sun Devils in this group. When you look at the average star rating at 3.44, Arizona State is actually ranked 19th. And I know some folks actually like to look at that ranking rather than the ranking that goes by the overall player signed. Arizona State only has 18 players in this class. This is one of the smallest class classes, I'm sorry, that we've seen this century. 
by the Sun Devil. So when you look at it, just a clear example of quality over quantity, I think this Arizona State recruiting class definitely ex exemplifies that adage. If you recall the December signing period press conference, the topic of in-state recruiting came up. That is a topic that definitely uh, boils the blood of almost anybody that is involved in that discussion, no matter which side of the fence you're present on that. And the Arizona State coaches basically made it clear that they will not take what they view as second-rate players from their own backyard. They do always target the best and brightest in the state of Arizona. And if those players don't want to come, Arizona State doesn't feel that they're doing anything wrong per se. It's just a matter of a player wanting to spread their wings. They could have been born and raised in Maricopa County, and they just want to go somewhere else for college, which is really no different than all the players that Arizona State is able to land from the state of California, a state that has been very, very kind for the Sun Devils in this 2020 recruiting class. They have been able to land five of the top 25 players from that state, 11 of the top 100 California prospects in the 2020 recruiting class. ASU absolutely cleaned up when it came to that. No Pac-12 program has been able to match, let alone supersede what Arizona State was able to do in one of the most fertile recruiting grounds in all of college football. Obviously, when you have a recruiting coordinator as Antonio Pierce with all the vast network of connections that he has, now you're adding some other assistant coaches and Prentice Gill and Derek Hagan and Chris Hawkins. All of them should be canvassing that state like no other. So you definitely got the sense coming out of the December signing period press conference that Arizona State was just done banging its head against the wall when it comes to recruiting in-state talent. Now, I should put the caveat in that Arizona State did get already a head start, really going back to last year on the 2021 prospects, and really made a statement, if you recall, last spring, where invited the top 15 2022 local prospects and offered all of them on the spot in you would call it, I guess, a recruiting event, bringing all of them on campus, showing them around, and the visit culminated with offering those 15 players. So even though the perception was that members of the ASU staff were pretty much fed up with what was going on in terms of seeing benefits to their in-state recruiting, there still were some actions that took place even months and months before the December press conference that showed that the Sun Devils definitely want to secure the local talent. And it was probably easier to do that with the 21 and 22 classes rather than the 20 class. But nonetheless, talking to a lot of people around the Valley, it seemed that there definitely was a perception. And as we know, perception sometimes is reality that Arizona State was not really going to put a lot of effort in future classes when it comes to trying and land in-state players. Arizona State only has one signee from the state of Arizona, and that is offensive lineman Ben Bray from Mesa Red Mountain High School. Uh, as a reminder, 
Scottsdale Soar linebacker Will Schaefer did commit to Arizona State. He is coming in as a blue shirt, so he did not sign a letter of intent, but will be part of the 2021 recruiting class for the Sun Devils as a blue shirt, will participate in fall camp, earn a scholarship when fall camp culminates. So I don't know if anybody had a stern talk with the ASU staff after that December signing period, because again, that was one of the biggest takeaways that this staff for the Sun Devils seemed absolutely fed up with dealing with local coaches, dealing with local players. And part of me really can't blame him all that much. I've said many times before that I feel that some of the high school coaches in the Valley, some of the players in the Valley just hold Arizona State to ridiculous standard. Again, I know that's an assertion a lot of people may disagree with me on, but I feel nonetheless that you can't look at Arizona State and how well the recruiting state of California and think that they really just don't give a darn when it comes to their own backyard. I think that is definitely an illogical argument. Again, some may disagree with me. Nonetheless, if that was the biggest takeaway back in December, that Arizona State was maybe not so many words kind of doing away with the state of Arizona when it comes to recruiting or maybe not investing that many resources. Here comes the February signing day press conference, and we're hearing a whole different tune from the ASU staff. They are calling the state of Arizona their home base when it comes to recruiting, and the California is first base. So I thought that was a really... I'm not going to say a 180 turn by the staff, but definitely a much different song than we heard being sung back at that December press conference. And and I think that Arizona State doesn't want to alienate anybody. And again, in some respects, the proof is in the pudding. And when Arizona State last spring offers 15 2022 class local players, they still show that their heart is definitely still to recruit this state the best that they can. And I think that's been frustrated with prospects from 2019, 2020, that maybe just by virtue of having a new staff, which is entering just now its third year in Tempe, it was hard to establish those rock-solid connections that other programs have been able to earlier and that Arizona State wasn't getting the hometown discount if you will, by a prospect that maybe didn't know Herm Edwards, Antonio Pierce, and the other staff members all that well, and just wanted to go with the school and with the coaches that he has grown to have a better relationship with. Going back to the comments that were made on Wednesday, recruiting coordinator Antonio Pierce said that people tend to overlook the fact that Arizona State was able in the last three years to sign seven in-state players. And he also pointed to the fact that the multitude of players that Arizona State was not able to sign are not players that went to University of Arizona or even NAU for that matter, but literally left the state. A lot of them even left the Pac-12 altogether. Now, in some respects, this also comes to the type of position that Arizona State is recruiting. And both... Antonio Pierce and Director of Player Personnel Al Lungenbull said that 
when it comes to offensive and defensive linemen, quality linemen, that is, that they didn't find that many caliber players in the state of Arizona, maybe not, not that many in neighboring states, but they made an effort to really go up and down the eastern seaboard. Antonio Pierce said that he was as north as New York State, as south as Miami, Florida, seeking those linemen for the Sun Devils. And he told those schools that he'll be back there in April when the coaches are allowed to go on the road recruiting again and bring him in some more assistance with them. So Arizona State feels that maybe some regions of the country are able to better produce the type of offensive and defensive linemen that they need. And that's something that Al Lugenbull did state is probably the biggest need right now. Maybe not only in the 2021 class, but maybe in the classes to follow as well. So I'm not denying that the Arizona State coaches, maybe with certain schools, certain players, feel that they're just wasting their time and effort pursuing a player that really has zero interest staying home, no matter if Arizona State is a team that's even contending for the national championship. But nonetheless, at times Arizona State is really going to leave the Valley and just look elsewhere for players that do possess that freak factor, for lack of a better term, somebody who is built like a Mack truck and runs like a deer, players that you just don't find that many, if at all, in the state of Arizona, but in the state of California and now on the eastern seaboard in the state of New York, state of Florida, state of Pennsylvania, Maryland, Arizona State is able to find those players quite easier and is targeting them pretty early in the recruiting process for the 2021 class. So Antenna Pierce basically said what he said back in December that Arizona State is not really locked into landing players from one state over the other. They were looking for the best player possible. And if they have 20 of those in the state of Arizona, they're more than happy to sign all 20 of them if there is mutual interest. But the way the landscape is shaped right now, and who knows, maybe that does change in future recruiting classes. Uh, you know, what Arizona State did offering the top 15 in-state kids in the 2022 class, that's something that has never been done by Arizona State. I don't even know if other schools do it in their own backyard with their own respective classes. So maybe the narrative of in-state recruiting does change in the 21, 22, 23 classes. Maybe it's just really more of the same where the Arizona State coaches will invest the appropriate time and resources to pursue those local recruits, but will definitely not feel that that approach is ever going to hold them back from looking at players as near as California and as far as New York or Pennsylvania or Maryland. Ultimately, when you look in a class that's ranked 25th in the country, it would be absolutely ludicrous to state that Arizona State and its recruiting approach are not being effective, that the coaches are not good recruiters, don't have a good philosophy when it comes to recruiting. Yes, it's too bad that having such a great class with so many skilled players doesn't have more of a local flavor. I mean, I'm not one that is 
absolutely intent on just having as fewer in-state players as possible in each and every recruiting class for Arizona State. I think that every coach, every fan out there does want to have the best players possible that Arizona State can land. And if some of those players happen to be from out of state, even if the vast majority, like this class, for example, happens to not reside in the state of Arizona, so be it. One of the comments I loved by Antonio Pierce was that he said, playing in Las Vegas Bowl was cool, and playing this past December in the Sun Bowl was okay, but you know what's really cool is playing in the Rose Bowl. And when you play in the Rose Bowl, you need to have players that fit a certain DNA, which again, by and large, it looks like the state of Arizona doesn't have an abundance of such players. So that is another factor that forces Arizona State to look elsewhere. And that's something that needs to be kept in mind when you discuss, which I understand is a very, very touchy subject of in-state recruiting. Now, that wasn't my only takeaway from the press conference. So let's move on to another major topic surrounding Arizona State football right now, a big defensive shakeup on its staff the last couple of weeks. And that inevitably became another topic that was discussed on a day that should have been devoted just to recruiting. Even if you're somebody like myself that's been 20 years in the business covering college football, it will never, ever cease to amaze me how often coaches switch jobs. And forget about moving from one school to another after being there maybe for just a year. We've seen more and more instances where coaches spend a few weeks, sometimes even less than a week, in school A before moving to school B. Now, that wasn't the case with Arizona State these last several days, but in a span of five days between January 31st and February 4th, Arizona State lost both its defensive line coach, Jamar Kane, who went over to Oklahoma to assume an outside linebacker's coaching position. And later on, Tony White, who's been on the job for less than two months at Arizona State after Danny Gonzalez, the former defensive coordinator, left to assume the head coaching job at New Mexico, Tony White decided to pick up and leave to go to Syracuse to assume the same defensive coordinator role over there. Now, with Tony White, this definitely was a matter of not only more money, but also being closer to his mother who lives in New York City. And granted, New York City isn't exactly around the corner from Syracuse, but obviously much easier to get to than flying across three time zones during football season, for example. With Jamar Kane, not only was it a better salary, but really an opportunity that you cannot turn down playing 
for one of the best teams in the country, a team that is seemingly in the college football playoffs each and every year. Maybe not having great success in that venue, but that's a different discussion for a different day. But nonetheless, these were two opportunities for these two individuals that they felt they could not pass up. And here's Arizona State after going through plan massive changes on the offensive side of the ball when it came to staffing, now has seen three assistants between December and the beginning of February just pick up and leave. And and look, not that Arizona State is an absolute juggernaut right now coming off an 8-5 and five season in 2019, but not exactly a dumpster fire where coaches should be itching to leave. Not a program where, like a USC, for example, is this cleaning house every other month, laying off two, three assistants at a time, trying to find the magic formula. Arizona State should have been somewhat stable in that sense. And again, the changes on the offensive side of the ball, those were necessitated by Herm Edwards. We talked about it in previous podcasts. I had no problem with the Sun Devils going in that direction. But when it came to the defense, you felt that maybe things were going in the right direction. And it seemed like a good group of coaches that really, by and large, should have stayed together for more than one year or two over here in Tempe. But this is really just the nature of the business. And I know that, at least with the Gonzalez and White, family played a very big factor with Jamar Kane, I think it's just not only the financial incentive, but just playing for more prestigious programs. So Arizona State finds itself losing three assistants on the defensive side of the ball as well and had to come up with a solution pretty quickly because, as you can imagine, at this stage of the calendar year, it's really hard to find quality candidates and really promoting from within seemed the prudent way to address this need as quickly as possible. So Herm Edwards, right after Tony White's departure, did announce that linebackers coach and associate head coach Antonio Pierce was going to be co-defensive coordinator with Marvin Lewis, the former NFL head coach who joined Herm Edwards in 2019 as a special advisor, now will be a co-defensive coordinator along with Pierce. Marvin Lewis, if you recall, was coaching the defensive backs in preparation for the Sun Bowl to compensate for the loss of Danny Gonzalez, continuing his role maybe with some added duties, if you will, at least formally as a co-defensive coordinator. Although Tony White, in an interview following his departure, said that the defensive scheme that we saw in the Sun Bowl is one that both Antonio Pierce and Marvin Lewis definitely had their fingerprints all over. Which brings us to the topic of how different is the Arizona State defense is going to look like because Danny Gonzalez was brought here because Herm Edwards, at least at the time, really wanted to employ a 3-3-5 scheme. Danny Gonzalez brought with him Tony White from San Diego State, who was his right-hand man, somebody who was obviously very, very well-versed in that defensive system and was going to help Gonzalez quite a bit implemented here in Tempe. But again, with those two coaches gone, it only stood to reason that Arizona State is going to move away from that scheme. Now, we still don't know if that defensive system is going to be nuked altogether, for lack of a better term, 
or maybe we'll just see some serious modifications, but maybe keep some of those elements in place. Now, going back to the Sun Bowl, we did see a lot of four-man fronts in that contest. Maybe the writing was on the wall back then that Herm Edwards felt that there has to be some tweaking at the very least of this scheme moving forward. And maybe that is one approach that could not have been done if Danny Gonzalez was still a defensive coordinator in place. And maybe with Tony White, who was a first-time defensive coordinator, was something that was easier to achieve. But, and I wrote a whole article about this, by the way, on our on our front page at devilsitis.com, is that program sources told me that Herm Edwards may have been enamored with the 3-3-5 scheme when he first got hired and when he first hired defensive coordinator Danny Gonzalez, but that the shine of that system maybe did wear off in the last couple of years. Maybe it was a system that caught some teams off guard initially, but it seemed as if very talented offenses and talented offensive coordinators in the Pac-12 were able to crack wide open that system with a great deal of ease. You know, again, when you look at Arizona State's record in the last two years, seven and six and eight and five, that's definitely not indicative of a shutdown defense. And, and we've seen great defenses in this league in the last couple of years. I mean, Utah is probably the first one that comes comes to mind. Washington back in 2018 was an outstanding defensive unit. And the Arizona State defense in both of those years did not even come close to that caliber of a unit. Now, in fairness, in those two seasons, Arizona State had to rely on a lot of underclassmen. And that's going to be less and less the case in 2020. So maybe just the vicious learning curve becomes much duller now that a lot of those key players are going to be juniors and seniors. So when we talk about all the incentives that Tony White had to leave the program, I think that while he may not have been itching to pick up and go somewhere else, I don't know if he felt all warm and fuzzy about staying at Arizona State and not running the classic 3-3-5 scheme, a scheme that obviously he knows better than any other defensive system out there. And when an opportunity came knocking, like the one at Syracuse, which again carried a strong family element with it, along with a financial boost in salary of a few hundred thousand thousands of dollars, then it maybe just came all together really easily for somebody like Tony White to, to, to make that decision, which again has the family component, as always, has a financial component, but also now had a philosophical component, knowing that even though he's a defensive coordinator, if he did stay in Tempe, is he running the system that he feels the most comfortable with, or is he going to fill outside forces, if you will, trying to tweak and change the 3-3-5 and definitely not run it in the purest of forms, a form that he undoubtedly feels the most comfortable with. So where does Arizona State go from here in terms of the defensive scheme it wants to implement? Well, Herm Edwards had maybe said it with a big smile on his face in the press conference, but obviously wasn't joking, that he's not going to reveal all his cards right now. We haven't even started spring practice as to how this defensive system is going to look different under Pierce and Lewis. Rushing the quarterback was definitely the Achilles heel of this Arizona State defense. I mean, sure, you can look at a defensive line and linebacker group for that matter 
that did very well against the run, ranked top 30 at season end. But the flip coin, I should say the vicious flip coin of that feat was a passing defense that was ranked 115th among all FBS teams. We talked many times before about the nightmare passing defenses we saw in Tempe in 2015 and 16. And in 2018, we felt that the ship was really righted quite a bit in that specific aspect. But uh, 2019 was almost a cruel regression back to history where Arizona State in back-to-back years in 15 and 16 was ranked dead last among FBS teams and obviously being ranked 115th thus this past season isn't really a great source of comfort even though you're only three years removed from actually being the worst passing defense among all FBS programs. So in a very pragmatic way, Herm Edwards said, look, we're looking for competent pass rushers each and every recruiting class. So it's not that the pass rushers who looked until now at can only function in a 3-3-5 scheme period end of story, but a pass rusher is a pass rusher is a pass rusher, and whatever scheme that you employ out there, 3-3-5, 3-4, 4-3, what have you, that you still need very skillful players who can disrupt an opposing signal caller or can be in an opponent's backfield more often than not. In terms of recruiting now for a scheme that is going to look differently, the transition is much smoother than some may think. Now, Herm Edwards, since the day he arrived in Tempe, always struck me as somebody who has been very, very transparent, not afraid at all to state the harsh and grim realities that may exist in one shape or form uh, with, with the program. But when it came to the specific question that you would ask of any co-coordinator set up is how the division of duties is going to be like, Herm Edwards really did not have an answer. Now, is he keeping his cards close to the vest for one reason or another? I guess that's one theory that cannot be dismissed. But he just really pivoted to the fact that Antonio Pierce, when he was with the Washington Redskins, played under Marvin Lewis, who was then his defensive coordinator, and that the two just know each other really well on many levels, and this marriage is going to work and work in a very seamless transition. Now, I don't mean to be skeptical by any means, but I think that if there was some kind of groundwork laid out in that press conference, that maybe we would have some clarity, maybe some fans would even feel more comfortable with this new arrangement in the, in, in the coaching staff. So I thought that was an interesting non-answer by Herm Edwards, and maybe the answers reveal themselves in spring practice or in fall camp, let alone in the 2020 season. Maybe it's something that just remains the great mystery from here on out. But I thought it was just very peculiar that the typical, straightforward Herm Edwards answer was not present when asked about the division of duties with these two new co-defensive coordinators. Myself and others have talked a lot about Antonio Pierce being the coach in waiting and that whether it's Danny Gonzalez or Tony White that was going to remain here as defensive coordinator, that Antonio Pierce, while not being the defensive coordinator, would actually be an associated head coach, really be Herm Edwards' right-hand man, which I think maybe in some respects could have been awkward having 
a defensive coordinator, which technically Antonio Pierce would report to as being a linebackers coach, but now but now as an associated head coach, is probably making a lot of decisions that is affecting his boss. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise that both Gonzalez and White left, not because they were bad coaches, not because they ran a system that was absolutely an abomination, because I still don't feel that way. But with the added responsibilities that Anthony Pierce was getting, with him being the so-called coach-in-waiting when Herm Edwards retires, which I went on record saying that I think it's happening after the 2021 season where we, when we expect Jenny Daniels to declare the NFL draft. So now, by virtue of being a co-defensive coordinator, the path for Antonio Pierce to be that head coach to replace from Edwards, the fact that now he can really be more in charge of his staff and, again, avoiding that weird dynamic where he's reporting to a defensive coordinator where later on in the day he'll be sitting one-on-one with Herm Edwards as an associated head coach and making decisions that might directly affect his boss. So now that potentially awkward element is just not present in the program at all, and I think that can really foster a healthy relationship between Antonio Pierce and the rest of the defensive staff. So at the end of the day, Herm Edwards is somebody who prides himself as always having a contingency plan, always having that physical or theoretical Rolodex of answers of coaches that he can hire at a drop of a pin. And he definitely was tapping into that Rolodex quite a bit ever since the regular season ended until now. So now a defensive line coach is the, the next order of business for Arizona State. No, I do not expect any assistant coaches from here on out to leave before the 2020 season. So it might have taken a long time to get stability as much as it can carefully use that word in today's environment of coaching in college football. But I think the stability factor for Arizona State is much closer than ever. Again, all these changes really make your head spin. But Herm Edwards says he was ready for them, had a very quick solution following the departure of Tony White. And we will see as soon as uh, spring practice how the co-defensive coordinator landscape for the Sun Devils does work out for that side of the ball. While I plan in the future to have a podcast that is going to go really in depth into each and every position as we get closer and closer to spring practice, did want to touch a little about some of the storylines that I'll be looking for for these 15 sessions, which start on February 24th. They will break in the middle for ASU's spring break and culminate with the spring game on Saturday March 28th. So when we talk about the next order of business for Herm Edwards, and that is hiring 
a defensive line coach. That is also the position that by the end of spring practice has to definitely come up with more answers and question marks going into fall camp. We talked just a few minutes ago about the lack of pass rush and what a significant shortcoming it was for the Sun Devils in 2019. So now a position that absolutely has to show some marked improvement from last season, now on top of all that, is going to have to deal with a brand new position coach. And look, best case scenario, this coach actually arrives in Tempe ready to work just about a week and a half before spring practice begins. And you talk about a rapid turnaround, really needing to hit the ground running as far as just getting acclimated and acquainted with all your players, knowing what philosophy that you want to run, be on the same page as co-defensive coordinators that you probably never worked with before. There are really a lot of challenges in store over here. And you look at a, at a unit that really aside from junior-to-be defensive end Jermaine Lole is just full of players, many of them underclassmen, that have not shown any measure of consistency whatsoever, have not shown that they can be a difference maker that Jermaine Lole was at times for the Sun Devils in 2019. Can somebody emerge from spring practice and prove to be a formidable defensive lineman for the Sun Devils moving forward, maybe even having... Two such players aside from Lole, that remains to be seen. But defensive line, to me, again, is absolutely a position that has to come out of spring practice smelling like a rose, if you will, and really quieting a lot of fears you have right now with this program when it comes to that specific position. Because when you look at linebackers, absolutely stacked group, and you have true freshmen, Jordan Becks and Kelly McCullough, already on campus, I think that this linebacker unit can be a real special one for Arizona State, maybe even somewhat compensating for the issues that might still linger on the defensive line and the lack of depth over there. In the secondary, you ask, what else can he ask for when you have two senior starters at cornerback in Chase Lucas and Jack Jones? Chase Lucas, a four-year starter, entering the 2020 season. Uh, this is an, a group with Ashari Coswell, who's going to be a junior. You look at at Cam, both Cam Phillips and, and Willie Hartz, both of them underclassmen, but both of them extremely talented, proven players at, at, at the other safety position. Evan Fields of the Tillman safety and who knows if the Tillman safety is going to be the same Tillman safety we saw under the 3-3-5, but nonetheless, Evan Fields had an absolute breakout year in 2019. Is still going to be a big part of this defense one way or another. I know that the eventual scheme could somewhat dictate his role. Maybe he's the one that plays alongside Ashari Croswell when it's all said and done. Uh, time will tell. We all know that Whatever defensive scheme Arizona State is going to run, this is definitely going to be, at times, and I would say more often than not, a five defensive back alignment. There are just way too many spread teams and or air raid offenses in the Pac-12 to contend with, not to have a 
nickel defense, or maybe just a true five defensive back defensive alignment to combat those opposing offenses that are definitely going to create those mismatches or at least attempt to create those mismatches that are going to force Arizona State to keep with a defensive back alignment that they did quite a bit of, obviously, in the last two years. So that shouldn't be foreign territory, but a lot of talent, a lot of experience in that aspect of the ASU defense. So really excited to see that, whatever defensive scheme will or will not change for the Sun Devils. Before we move over to the offense and what we should look forward to over there, we need to make a quick pit stop at special teams. This is a unit I thought really performed quite well in 2019, was not even close to being a deficiency for the Sun Devils. But now, what does life look like without Pac-12 first-team punter Michael Turk? I mean, right now, as it stands, Arizona State's going to have to have an answer from within, from one of the few walk-ons they have on the team. Maybe they add a grad transfer at punter before fall camp begins. That re- that remains to be seen. Extremely huge shoes to fill to whomever eventually is named Arizona State's starting punter in 2020. And we'll see if spring practice does provide some clarity on that position. So now, moving to the offense, you basically have a situation where you're going to have some experience on the offensive line, and granted, some of it is going to be underclassmen, as we mentioned, such as Donovan West and Ladarius Henderson. You're going to have a quarterback who's still an underclassman, but definitely a proven signal caller in his own right in Jaden Daniels. You're going to have a very talented wide receiver that, I think broke out to some extent in the last six games of the, of the year in senior to be Frank Darby. But by and large, you have a lot of skilled players. I even throw the tight end into that mix that are going to be either first year players or players that are underclassmen with limited amount of experience. Obviously, you look first and foremost to the running back group, Demonte Trainum. And Daniel Nada, both of them true freshmen, both of them on campus early in release, and that's huge. But life after Eno Benjamin and ASU's ground attack may not be a pretty sight. And we'll find out pretty quickly in spring practice, again with an offensive line that does have some experience, but definitely has a, a, a measure of inexperience to it as well. How will those two elements mesh with each other? And maybe those running backs prove to be mature and talented well well beyond the years and not really skipping a beat. Maybe in an offensive line that we're still concerned about the lack of experience over there proves to be a pleasant surprise. Maybe proves to be a better group than 2019 that had a good fair of seniors to it. Uh, That is uh, an element that's going to be very interesting to follow. And the wide receiver group as a whole, as talented as Frank Darby is, I don't know if he's the type of wide receiver that can really carry such a heavy load of the passing game on his shoulders like we've seen Brandon Ayuk this past year and the year before with Nikhil Harry. So for Frank Darby to truly shine, he does need some help. And again, he got definitely got those help from those two players I just mentioned. But who are the wide receiver or the wide receivers that actually step up to the plate and compliment Frank Darby. 
Is it Jordan Porter? Is it Jordan Curley? Is it is it is it, is it, is it Ricky Paracel? Is it in theory Johnny Wilson maybe more of a hybrid tight end wide receiver, but somebody that potentially could arrive in mid March for the second part of spring practice? How much can he really make an immediate impact as a, as a true freshman participating in his first ever spring practice? So wide receiver is an, is another group that a lot of underclassmen define that unit and whether that's a positive or a negative we will find out i feel in the first few weeks of spring practice where the where the wind is blowing and the thing with the wide receiver group that if you're going to have those returning players most of them underclassmen not really performing all that well on the one hand you're opening a door to three talented True freshman wide receivers, all of them four-star prospect in no specific order, Chad Johnson Jr., LV Bunkley Shelton, and Elijah Badger to really carve their niche in fall camp. But at the end of the day, now you have returning underclassmen that may not be performing at the level you expect them to, and now you're heavily relying on true freshmen to carry the load not exactly an ideal situation. And again, you're dealing with a running game that maybe cannot be as dominant as it was in years past just because you got true freshmen over there. So there's definitely more uncertainties on offense than there are on defense. But as mentioned, a lot of things need to be figured out on that side of the ball too. Again, it's special teams, namely punter. So really excited to see how all these storylines develop and do we have a larger number of pleasant surprises over disappointments throughout those 15 practices. So that'll just about do it for this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Aside from a listener, would love to have you as a reader, more specifically as a premium subscriber on my website, devilsdigest.com. As a lot of my subscribers can attest, I definitely Kept them in the loop with a, a lot of the ebbs and flows with recruiting, with coaching searches. So you are missing out if you're there on the sidelines. So please join us at the Devil's Huddle. Become a premium subscriber at devilsdigest.com. We'll have a lot of news approaching spring practice and during spring practice itself. Also baseball coverage and basketball coverage as well. Thank you again for listening. I was living in a devil town I didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town All my friends were vampires Didn't know they were vampires Turns out I was a vampire myself in Devil Town Devil Town Didn't know it was a 
I was living in a devil town